Hey, good morning, and welcome to East Bay Calvary. Hey, hasn't it been great already? Boy, that's really convincing. Wow. Wow. I am I'm just so excited to be able to be with you this morning. I was anxious. I had a week off last week, but we had a great time with Ken Rudolph uh, last week and just how encouraging he is to our ministry. And so here we are, uh, and I am... I've been holding this thing in for two weeks, and I just can't wait to talk to you today. So uh, if you would, turn in your Bible or your iPhone or your iPod or your iPad or whatever it may be to Matthew in chapter 18, Matthew 18, and then um, take your study guide, if you would, which is on the back of your East Bay Weekly. And I heard that we had so many people here this morning, we actually ran out of these so if you have one, these are limited editions already, <laughs> worth more than what they were when you came in this morning. So make sure you hold on good and tight to that. As you're turning to Matthew 18, let me just give you a mini commercial. You've already heard about it from Pastor Dallas, and that is um, VBS starts tomorrow. This is the most wonderful time of the year. VBS week. It really is. It's exciting. And if you couldn't tell by all of what we have up here and in the foyer, and if you only came in this morning and walked in here, went up to the balcony, you need to take a moment at the end of our service and go downstairs and walk through downstairs. It is absolutely sensational. You've just got to see it. So don't just leave and go through the door. You need to go downstairs and see what they've done down there, like what they've done up here. It's really special. As of now, as Pastor Dallas mentioned, we have 150 students pre-registered for VBS, which is just outstanding. And then beyond that, this is the thing that does my pastor's heart really good. We have 80 volunteers, and that is, that's absolutely fantastic. And, and I don't know, I don't know if you'll ever fully experience um, how that makes a pastor feel about his people. Um, to have 80 people volunteer, that just does my heart good. I'm just, I'm just so proud of you. I just thank God for you. Um, I really do love you. I really do. I, I just look at our ministry and I think either we have one of the most selfless and committed churches around or we're just full of a lot of crazy people. Um, but here's just a pre-thank you, thank you for your help and your involvement in helping us get the gospel into the next generation. I'm just so thankful for you. So as you're turning to Matthew chapter 18, let me just share with you how it all starts out. First of all, the 12 disciples, the 12 guys who were being mentored by Jesus came to him and asked a question. And here's their question right off the bat in verse 1. They asked this, so who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, number one, that's really not a good question to start out with. And sadly, the disciples had asked this question numerous times of Jesus throughout their earthly ministry with him. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, and I think we know they weren't asking 
because they wanted to find out who that person is so they could go talk to him or pay homage to him. They were asking because they wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whenever I um, hear that, you know, they're, they're thinking, who, who could everyone esteem in God's kingdom? Who's on top? Who's the one in charge? Who gets things the way that they want them? And, and who is the greatest? Whenever I hear the, the phrase, the greatest, or I am the greatest, you know who I think of? Muhammad Ali. Ali's never, his name has never been synonymous, you know, with, with um, base humility. In fact, I read a story of a time he was flying to one of his engagements, and during the flight, the, the um, airplane was in midst of a lot of um, turbulence and began to toss back and forth, and, and the pilot got on there and said, I just want you to know that we're experiencing moderate turbulence, which in pilot's lingo is if you have a faith position, please start talking to your God right now. It could be a dangerous scenario. And so here he says, and I want everyone to fasten their seatbelts at this time until further notice. Well, wouldn't you know what the flight attendant looks out and Muhammad Ali, no seatbelt for him. So she walked up to Muhammad Ali and said, um, sir, you heard the pilot and everyone needs to be wearing a seatbelt at this time. And Muhammad Ali, just in typical fashion, just kind of big and bold, he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the, the stewardess said, well, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> and he put it on. <laughs> so here we are with the disciples and they're trying to play king of the mountain, you know, with God's kingdom. Who's the greatest? Who's the big one? Who's the one on top? Who's the one in charge? Who's the one that gets it their way? Who is the top dog in God's kingdom? And I'm just telling you, this passage right here creates the most beautiful, riveting picture. And Jesus' response is just fantastic. And it forms our study for this morning. So I want to read, if you would, it's a little larger section in Matthew chapter 18, and it's verses 1 through 14, and, and I've been giving you a break the past number of Sundays where we haven't had you stand, but this is a little bit longer section, and just to get your blood flowing, to get things moving, would you just stand with me for a moment? You don't have to read this with me, I want to read it for you, and when I go through it, I want you to look at and figure out ways that Jesus identifies who's the greatest, and how do they become great? So I'm going to read this, look at it, and figure out who's the greatest, how do they become great? Let me read this for you. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore... Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Stumble. 
Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Can I pray with you for a moment, and then we're going to jump into this. Father, what an important, compelling, and guiding discussion we have in front of us. And we've sung songs about your spirit having its way here. And please do that in me and in every united heart throughout this room. We ask you, God, to lead us, guide us, grow us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. We got some work to do. So who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the disciples asked. And Jesus, when they asked this question, pulls over this child and says, I, I want you to learn something from this child. And he mentions some life lessons that they just could not walk away from and not be impacted. Now, I don't know, I think that there's a difference in our understanding about children today and children back then. It's a little different today than it was back in Bible times. And in fact, uh, today, children have a little more perceived value. Basically, you know, in our day and age, certainly politicians look at kids and they see perceived value and some of their mantra is you know we need to leave the generation next for our children we need to think about the next generation or no child left behind they throw out different things like that children will be at their signing uh, ceremonies for bill signing and all these other things children have those kinds of impacts they'll be there for photo ops but back in bible times children really weren't very significant Certainly they had some importance for their parents or in their family, and especially um, a young male child would have had more significance back then to their family. But as far as publicly, children were kind of a nuisance. In fact, there was even some other situations in the Bible where the disciples um, saw children coming to Jesus. And they ended up saying, um, whoa, you know, get back, get away from Jesus. You know, there's this nuisance, enough of this, you're just going to be a bother. And it ends up that, the, uh, that Jesus says to them, don't, don't keep the little children from coming to me. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. But we get a glimpse into, in Bible days, children did not have significant value to the community, it was more so just to the family. 
And so when Jesus asked the disciples, or he mentions the disciples in answering their question, who's the greatest, and he pulls his child in, this doesn't smack us as much as it smacked them. This was a big deal for them to understand the greatest is like this little one. Okay, grab your, grab your study guide. I want to give you your first answers here this morning. Who are the children Jesus referred to? Who are the children Jesus referred to? I want to give you three understandings from the context that tells us who Jesus is talking about because that's going to set up the rest of our discussion. And if I didn't tell you earlier, today's a text message question day. And you see the text message um, number that Jack's, there it is. Um, you'll see this here, and as questions come up for you in our discussion, go ahead and forward them uh, to that number, and we're going to try to answer them a little bit later on in our time here this morning. Who are the children Jesus referred to? Number one, I'm going to give you the easiest one. Certainly, they were literal children. And when Jesus says, here's this child, and he pulls a child in, it's a literal child, a literal young person. And so when he's discussing this, he's actually saying, here's someone we need to pay attention to, and it's actual, literal children. Here's number two. In application beyond literal children, he opens it up to children-like figures in the kingdom of heaven. And so number two, he would be talking about those with a greater potential to stumble. Notice verse six. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me. So here's someone who believes in Jesus, and they're little, they are newer, they are weaker in the faith, and there's a greater potential for them to stumble or fall away. So that's number two. So literal children, then potentially younger people in the faith. Here's number three. Those with a greater potential to veer or get lost, and that is verses 12 through 14, and he mentions which of you having a hundred sheep, if one goes away, doesn't leave the 99 and go after the one, and then verse 14 outlines it in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones. And so when Jesus looks at these kids, he's describing literal children. He's also describing even potential adults that are new to the faith who could stumble or fall away. And then he's describing people that are early in their faith or going through a risk time and they have the potential to veer or stray or wander off. That's who he's talking about. And so as we discuss this, we are looking at this that we need to establish a kingdom perspective of these children. Youth, potential to stumble or the potential to veer or get lost. So I'm gonna ask two questions here and we're gonna answer them together and then we're gonna get into your text message questions. Two questions to establish kingdom priorities. Here's question number one. How should we be like a child? This is the greatest answer I can give you today. How should we be like a child? If you're in chapter 18, look at the first few verses. He calls this little child to him, verse 2. Verse 3, he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the answer. How should we be like little children? Here's the quick answer. Have the faith of a child. Have the faith of a child. There's something that everyone must possess to enter the kingdom of heaven, and it's not our smarts. It's not our accomplishments. It's not our repertoire of talents and abilities. Ultimately, what gets someone into the kingdom of heaven is not the achievements that we have done. It's the achievements that Jesus Christ has done for us. And the reality is, Christianity is the one thing that is not based in our works. There's nothing that we can do to ever undo the punishment that we deserve for our mass of wrong. Rather, Christianity is not built on our works. It's built on the work of Jesus when he died on the cross. That was the accomplishment that bore the punishment for all of our sin. And here's how this works. It's actually extremely simple. I'm going to pop this out there. This is the faith of a child. Either our sin will be punished in one of two ways. Either we believe that Jesus was punished for our sin on the cross and we're forgiven, or we don't believe he died for us and we bear our own punishment for our own sin in hell. It's that simple. It's the faith of a child. And how do children believe? They just soak it all in. There's a level of gullibility. There's a reliance in another. There's not self-reliance. There's not self-righteousness. Everything, folks, that we believe in our ability to get to heaven, it's all based on God's ability in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sin. There are no famous people that get to heaven on their own credibility. The only way we get to heaven is based upon the work of Jesus and his death on the cross. There was a tour of New York City once, and um, this tourist asked the guide, and what famous people were born here? And the tour guide said, no famous people, only babies were born here. That's how we all get in, gang. Not based on our reputation, our credibility, our works, our accomplishments, our achievements. It's only, only exclusively based on the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin. And Jesus says straight out, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to have the faith of a child. Start on square one. Believe that Jesus died for your sin. That's the first question that's answered in the text. How should we be like a child? Now we put the car in park. Here's where I want to land it for the rest of our discussion. And on a lot of this is where our text message questions, I assume, will come. Question number two. How should we treat the children among us? <clears throat> how should we treat the children among us? Remember, the children are <clears throat> youth. They are individuals who are newer and have the potential to stumble in the faith. And then they are individuals who in their faith walk have the potential to wander or get lost. How should we treat those among us? <clears throat> and here's three answers that I want to give us from the text of how we treat those among us. And then it's time for your questions here today. <clears throat> Answer number one, 
is found in verse 4. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child. So here's answer number one. How do we treat the children among us? And answer number one is accept an inferior position. That's your blank there. Accept an inferior position. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child. Literally, this means to voluntarily accept a lower rank to be placed below others, to make one lowly. This isn't merely talking about a character trait of some sort of false humility where I talk about other people maybe being better than me. This is the reality that I make myself low and I make others bigger than me. That was a radical shift in their societal value system in Bible days. None of the disciples would have ever caught this one coming when they said, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he says, you know what? The greatest one are the people that make themselves lower than the others and elevate the others. I'm sure the disciples were thinking, you mean the one who's the greatest doesn't get the recognition? You mean the one who's the greatest may not be the most visible? You know, the greatest may not be the focal point. You mean the greatest may not get their way? And Jesus says, exactly. You know, in reality, think about it. This is one of the most, this is one of the poorest sales pitches to get someone to join your organization, isn't it? Become a committed Christian where you can be less important than the others. It's just, What? Join Jesus' team where others get priority over you. And that's what the disciples are hearing. Why would I voluntarily, think about it, why would I voluntarily lower myself beneath the children, the weak, and the wanderers? I'm going to give you a really compelling reason. And it's in this passage right here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. You have that up there? Let's look at it for a moment. This is, this is about as compelling as can be. Why do I accept an inferior position beneath the children, beneath the weak, beneath the wanderers? This is about Jesus in verses 6 through 8. He says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he, Jesus, made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, even death on the cross. And so the question here, why do I put myself beneath others? And one of the biggest compelling reasons is this is the heart of Jesus Christ himself. This is what he did for you. This is what he did for me. You know, Jesus had superiority. He had rights. He had tenure. Just think about it. He was the only charter member of the universe. 
No one's higher, no one's greater. And he voluntarily denied use of those rights. He lowered himself and elevated us and our needs for our rescue. There's one example I think about with this, and um, I don't know if this fits where you are. There's the big three. If you Google it online, the big three were a uh, trio of professional basketball players for the Miami Heat between 2010 and 2014. I'm not a huge NBA fan, but this is one thing that caught my attention. It consisted of LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris, Chris Bosh on the Miami Heat together for those four years. Catch this. After re-signing Dwayne Wade, who was originally with the team on the Miami Heat, the Heat then secured the signings of both Bosch and LeBron James in free agency, and the trio led the Heat to the NBA Finals in each of those four seasons together, winning back-to-back championships in 2013 and 2012. And here's the big question. How in the world did the Miami Heat have the money to be able to sign Bosch and James when they already had superstar Wade on their team? And I don't know if you know the answer. I'm going to give it to you right now. How in the world do they have the money under the, under the salary cap to sign them? Here's the answer. Dwayne Wade, the superstar for the Heat, their leading scorer, took an $18 million pay cut to be able to sign those two guys for the team. That's crazy. Now, before you start feeling sorry for him, his net worth is $93 million, okay? So let's just balance the whole thing. But you realize, why would he take an $18 million pay cut? You know what you hear today? I want to be the highest paid person at my position. I want to be the highest paid person in the NBA. I want to be at the lead of the salary chart. And you know what he did? He said, no, 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 no. You know why he took an $18 million pay cut? He said, I want to win. I want to get the big trophy. I, I really want to be successful. And who cares if I'm the leading scorer and who cares if I'm the leading paid guy? And you know, in all the seasons with the Miami Heat, Dwayne Wade was never, although he was the highest scorer, he was never the highest paid player. First thing we do, how do we treat the children around us? How should we treat them among us and the very first thing we do is we lower ourselves. why do we do that we want them to succeed we want them to win we want them to know jesus we want them to be stable we want them to be found here's number two and it's welcome them and i'm going to have to start moving through this if we're going to have time for your questions welcome them Ways that we treat the children among us. Here the very first one is we lower ourselves. Take the lowly position of this child. Don't be over them. Don't demand your own things, but elevate them. And then verse 5, he says, And whoever welcomes one such child in my name. Whoever welcomes them. Now welcome or receive is this. This is a really good distinction. Welcome or receive in your translation is an intentional acceptance 
focus or accommodation. It's not merely a greeting. Welcome is not, hello, glad to have you today. It's greeting. In this wording here, the idea is they belong. They need to know this is their place. They are sought after and desired. They are valued. It's like rolling out the red carpet. And how do we understand the significance of this? If you go to verse 6, contextually, if it says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck to be drowned in the deepest part of the sea. And, and I, when I looked this up, I thought, what's the stumbling? How would they stumble? Dr. R.T. France mentions in his work on Matthew, when I worked through this, he says the antithetic alternative, the opposite of verse 5, we should be welcoming them, making them belong. And he says the opposite is what causes little ones to stumble. Doesn't mean that they're led into apostasy. Rather, they are not welcomed. They are ignored. They are overlooked. They are rejected. That causes them to stumble in their discipleship. Notice verse 5, we welcome them like it's Jesus that walked through the door. Imagine if Jesus just walked through the door. How would we welcome him? I, uh, when I was in my first ministry in Ohio, it was a, I was on a Sunday and I was feeling particularly sick and was having some throat problems and there was a doctor in there. I was just, I was familiar with him. I really didn't know him well. But someone alerted this doctor and said, uh, you know, Pastor Brian's not feeling good. Why don't you check up on him? So Dr. Billings came up to me and he said, now what's going on? And I'm like, I, I'm feeling something in my throat, and I don't know what it is. And he says, okay. He said, um, here's where my office is. And he mentioned that. He says, um, when you come in around 10, he says, I'll just squeeze you in. I thought, boy, that is nice of him. He says, just come on in. I'll have let the ladies up front know. You come on in and say this is who you are, and I'll, I'll just squeeze you in right around 10. So I did. I, I got in there. He invited me. I showed up. I'm like, this is a nice facility. This is a this is a really nice office. And I got there and I walked up to the desk and the ladies were so friendly. And, and uh, I said, I'm Brian Connor. And they said, yeah, we were expecting you. And, and uh, he said, uh, just a couple minutes, the doctor will free out and, and he'll come and get you. And I thought, isn't that great? And I, um, they said, why don't you just have a seat in the waiting room? And I turned around, I started walking in the waiting room. I started looking around and there were six women in the waiting room. That was really interesting. Then I noticed they were all pregnant. I'm like, what a coincidence that I'm in the doctor's office and the other six people with me are all pregnant women. And then I sat down and I leaned forward to grab a magazine and it was motherhood. <laughs> and then there's the baby name book. And then there was the breast is best. And I said, what in the world is going on here? 
And I went from feeling welcome to feeling extremely awkward. And all of these women, I realize now, are looking at me like, there is a real problem. <laughs> and then even worse, the nurse comes out and says, uh, Brian, the doctor will see you now. And I'm walking in there like, this is really crazy. And he told me after he checked and I had strep throat, he says, you know what, come back anytime. I said, I, no thank you. I never went back ever again. Because I realized welcome is more than a handshake and it's more than, hi, we like you, and it's more than a nice facility. It's feeling that you belong. And so the text reaches out and it says, you know what? How we treat Children, weak and wanderers, they need to belong. They need to feel valued. They need to understand how significant they are and that we will lower ourselves to connect with them. Here's number three, and then we're going to get to your questions. Here's number three. Pursue them. Verse 12. What do you think if a man owns 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Pursue them. The word... Um, in verse 12, do not despise, see, or verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. It's, it's not speaking of a hatred, like, oh, I just despise them, but rather to make one feel of no value by our lack of consideration or thought. You know, if a sheep wanders off and if the shepherd does not pursue it, it doesn't, the shepherd doesn't have to hate them for the sheep to feel despised. But their lack of pursuit shows it's of no true or of very little value. And so the idea Jesus is saying is we need to target these people. These people need to be in our crosshairs. They need to be a part of our passion. We need to be thinking about those who have the tendency to wander away and we need to be in hot pursuit, not as a byproduct just hoping that they will be a part of this place, but that we're behind them and we are going after them and we intentionally want them. We value them. I want to give you these three things and then uh, your questions. So what do we do? I'm going to ask you something that I think is the biggest thing I'm ever going to ask of you in all my tenure here, and here's what it is. Sign up for second place. Sign up for second place. Intentionally embrace an inferior position. If you've been with Jesus and you don't have concern of stumbling or wandering, I just want to ask you, as I'm asking of myself, to say what Jesus said in verse 4. Take second place. Don't worry about yourself. Let's say stuff like, it's not about me. I'm not stumbling. I'm not wandering. I'm not youth. I'm fine. 
I'm a part of that 99. I'm with the fold. I'm not going anywhere. Let's look for the one. Let's pursue them. Let's welcome these. Let's make them understand they belong. They need Jesus. Desperately need him. So sign me up for second place. Here's number two. Give them a sense of belonging. Give them a sense of belonging like it was Jesus who was coming. Not merely a sense of greeting, not merely a howdy, a shake the hand, but that they belong here and they are valuable to us. And then number three, pursue them. Pursue them. Intentionally target those most at risk. Target those most at risk. They need to be in the crosshairs. If we're part of the 99 and we're in the fold and we're huddled together, great. We're not the target as much. We need to think about those youth, those weak, and those wanderers and target them and say, you're important to us. We roll out the red carpet. This is not necessarily the most popular message to throw out when we realize we need to sign up for second place. And I'm really curious what questions may be coming in that we can try to answer together. So if you have another question, you can text it and we'll pop it up here. Uh, how do you keep childlike faith in our world today? I would have been fine with that except in our world today. Don't we live in a squirrely world today? This thing is as chaotic as could ever be. And to keep childlike faith in our world today, I, I think there's, um, there's an important part. We're assuming that we already have it, and we want to retain this, God, whatever you say, I'm going to do it mentality. And I think one of the best ways, number one, obviously, is to continue to be in God's word and continue to be under the hearing of God's word. But then I really think a second way is really important for us to maintain childlike faith in our world today is to be with other people who also believe God's word. And, and so one of the big things we're going to be pushing come fall, and you're going to be hearing about it, is it, we want 100% of this ministry to be involved in community, life groups, small groups, 100%. If I'm, if I'm feeling really good, I might back that off to 99%. But we want everyone to be in. Because, you know, there's some days our faith gets weak. And we need other people around us to pour into us and build us up. So I think two great ways is to be in God's word and then to be with God's people in a personal community way, not just in a big room, in a small room where you're into each other's lives. That's one thing. Let's see what else we got here. So if a child veers or strays, they will still be accepted by Jesus and saved even if they continue to veer and stray. Um. That's a loaded question. Whoever gave that one? Uh, but it's a good question. 
it comes down to this. I may be on the hot seat in a moment. I believe if someone truly believes that Jesus Christ died for them, genuinely, they're saved not by their work, they're saved by his. And his work doesn't change. And if someone genuinely puts their faith and trust in Christ, I believe once they have been made a child of his, they are always a child of his. Let me just say this as a caution, though. There are times when our children can recite our words and recite our prayers and say what we want them to say, and it's not truly, genuinely theirs. And I've heard some parents say, as they've seen their child go off and say, well, you know, once saved, always saved, so I know I'll see him in heaven even though they've completely left God. And I, sometimes I wonder in my head, but did they, how, how real was this, folks? Was it really theirs? And, and I don't want to just chalk it up and say, so they're fine, no problem. Was it truly theirs? Did they really, truly believe? Did they really give their life to Jesus Christ? And that's a hard question to ask if you're a parent. But it's something that we do need to talk about. If they do veer and stray, I'm telling you, the Bible talks about God being a father, and he does discipline those kids in whom he delights. And if there's a genuine child of his, I think we're going to see God on their tail. And even given some spankings here and there to try to turn their life around and bring them back to him. I, I got some stats. We can talk about that after a little bit. What's another question we got? How do we combine a childlike faith that accepts what is taught because we trust the teacher and a faith that seeks understanding as we are committed to continue growth? Um, uh, we need to do both. Uh, I think part of our ministry needs to target both of those things. Um, but I, I really think that the goal of our ministry is when people become self-feeders, like if your only meal throughout the whole week was church dinner, you're going to be starving Monday through Saturday. Okay? So our desire here is that people are self-feeders, and this is something we're going to be talking about in the future. You come to here, great, we'll give you something to chew on, but you know what, we want you to chew Monday through Saturday too. And a part of that can be um, seeking understanding not merely from the teacher, but from you studying God's word by yourself or with other people to continue to grow. And that's my quickest answer for that one. Let's see if we got any others here. Is there a difference in how we should treat, act toward unbelievers versus new believers? That's a great question. Uh, I'm gonna say Yes and no. Okay, next question. <laughs> okay. Let me give you my three words. These are really important. When I grew up, <clears throat> so important it was that people behaved. When you step into the church, whether you're a believer or not, here's your code of conduct. Here's what you wear. Here's how you act. Here's how you sing. Here's when you stand. Here's when you sit. There was behavior then we hope they believed, and then they could belong. I really believe, 
When someone walks here, and if they are an unbeliever or if they are a new believer, I really believe there needs to be a sense we value you. We want you here. You belong. I know not as a member, but man, we are all about you. And then we hope they believe. They belong, they stay, we hope they believe. And then number three, how can we really expect a non-believer to behave until they have believed? I really believe it flips. We give a sense of belonging, they believe, and then they behave, their lives change. Rather than toe the line and look good, then believe, and then we'll give you a sense of belonging. And so personally, I would say, um, is there a difference in how we should treat and act? No. May there be a difference in what we discuss or teach? Yes. But in how we treat them? No. We, we should value them, love them, pursue them, and encourage them. Next question. Maybe time for one. How can the church best come alongside and disciple the children Jesus referred to? Uh, boy, how much time we have here this morning? How, how can we best come alongside and disciple? There's two things in my mind that, that I think are critical for us moving forward. Um, number one, there is no substitute for the teaching, discussion, work of God's Word. There's no better curriculum for discipling. We, we're a Bible-centered ministry. It all focuses around this book that God's given to us. In teaching it, we need to talk in their language in ways they understand. And, and so we need to be able to um, connect with them in this culture in discernible terms and things that apply to them that are relevant to their lives. And so, so there's always this teaching aspect. And I really believe, and I know you're going to maybe, I'm going I'm to be talking about it for a long time here, the issue of relationships is critical. And I really believe we'll talk about these things in a big setting, but then some of the best ways to disciple is when we get done with here and we collect into groups and then we can be in each other's lives and say, you know what, you heard what Brian talked about Sunday. How does that affect you? What decisions did you make? How are we growing? And you talk about a good discipleship follow-up program and that's when each of us are in each other's lives and helping each other advance. I really believe teaching and relationships are some of the two biggest priorities for church ministry, especially to help guide children. And he talked about it in the text, welcoming them, building this sense of belonging and relationship, and pursuing them, making them feel valued. We got time for one more question, then we're going to finish up. And how should we interpret and apply Matthew 18, 8 through 9 about cutting your hand? Oh, man, I know. Isn't that a rough one? Um... Number one, I'm going to say don't literally apply it. I think I'm in safe ground there. I think what he's talking about is we need to take the issue of stumbling blocks seriously. Very seriously. 
And sometimes people play around with or flirt with sinful tendencies. And these are not things we should be playing around with. If they cause an occasion for us to stumble. Likewise, for those who are long-term believers, as we consider the children, the weak, and the wanderers, we need to make sure we do not cause an occasion for them to stumble. This needs to be their place. And, um, and, and he mentions, Jesus mentions in the text, if we cause an occasion where they're like, eh, they don't care about me, nah, that's their church, I don't understand a lick of it, and they leave because of our neglect or ignoring them, the text says it, not me, Jesus says it, better a millstone be hung around their neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. I looked that up in the Greek. You know what it means? Very bad situation. You know how much a millstone weighs that treads out grain? 1,100 pounds. Jesus says, if you mess with my kids that are coming to me, and you don't pave the way and red carpet the way, or you don't pursue them, that's being a stumbling block to them. We need to go after them. So I'm going to give you these things to finish. I'm as serious as a heart attack. Every one of us, without exception, needs to sign up for second place. I don't care about me anymore. I've got seven kids. I went to a Christian rap concert on Wednesday night. I hate rap music. But I danced it with the best of them. And my kids were so embarrassed with me. I don't care about me anymore. 70 percent of kids that come up through church turn away by age 19 70 can we feel that people this is the most at risk generation ever and our world is pursuing them with vigorous passion and I really believe the church needs to pursue them harder and for that to happen we need a whole congregation that says okay I'm second place that's what I signed up for I'm not worried about stumbling I'm not worried about wandering I'm worried about them let's pursue them let's welcome them 70 percent And so in the very near future, probably within a month, we're going to be coming back to a business meeting together after a morning service, and we're going to be talking about this. And you're going to be getting a proposal in your hands in advance of that meeting that's going to be talking about what we went through as Kingdom Kids Ministry and our little pilot program and how it's all coming around and what we can do to truly invest 
in the next generation right here that rolls out the red carpet for our next generation. And I really believe if we truly sign up for second place, that is turbo fuel to more and better disciples. That will revolutionize any ministry, and I'm feeling it more and more here at East Bay Calvary. And so I just step back, this is just a reminder, can we all commit to signing up for second place it's not about me. Lastly, and then, uh, then we'll, we'll finish up. I've never had a situation, never, where a kid came to me and said, I'm so nervous because my grandparents are walking away from God. Never had it. 26 years in ministry. Never had a kid come up and say, oh, my, my grandma and grandpa, they're walking away from the Lord, and I'm so concerned. However, guess how many grandparents I've had come back to me? Guess how many parents I've had come back to me? And I really believe because of the great need, that's why Jesus says we need to look beyond ourselves and you want to be great in God's kingdom? Second place. Let's pursue them. Let's welcome them. Would you pray with me for a moment? I don't know how God is tugging your heart right now. But I sure do hope he is because he tugged mine for the last two weeks. And in your seat right there, number one, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know you're part of his kingdom, you need the faith of a child. You need to understand, believe, and embrace that Jesus loves you and died on the cross for you and realize that that forgiveness that comes from him is the only thing that can cleanse you and clean up your sin. You need to believe in him. And number two, if you're there and you're with me and we've been around church, Would you promise right in your seat right now, and I'm serious about this, please don't walk out of these doors without making a decision. Would you promise with me, I'm signing up for second place. I don't need to be prima donna. I don't need to be top dog. I don't need my itch scratched. This isn't about me anymore. Would you sign up with me for that? Then number three, if you're weak, or you're a wanderer, or you're trying to figure this out, I want you to know that East Bay Calvary is the place for you. We love you. We want you here. We want you to sense belonging. We want you to experience what we've been experiencing. In this prayer, would you talk to God? And make one of those decisions.
And let's make this different here. Father, make this place, continue to grow it. Help us to have the heart of Jesus and just to give of ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would use our humility and our personal sacrifice in whatever way it may be to make this a special place, a greenhouse, an incubator for those youth, those weak, and those wanderers. And God, as you grow us, I just exclaim all glory, honor, praise to you for what you've done. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.